0: Welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris major And in this episode, we're continuing the book, The Wind Calls the Tune, by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is the 13th part of the reading, and we're on chapter 14. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash Mariner, And there, for $5 a month, you can not only support this podcast but also get access to additional, exclusive, Patreon-only content. Now on with the story. Chapter 14 Fish and Fog The following morning Ashton came and gave us instructions. In the evening, we were to sail up to the bandstand a little higher up the harbour, make a turn, and depart. He added a warning about shoals. We roamed the town for the rest of the day, spending our few remaining illicit dollars Buying bread, bacon, and fruit. There were very faint airs that night when the band started to play, but Ashton had thought of everything, for he had brought his rowboat, plus the outboard engine, in order to tow us if the wind proved too light. We started off all right, and with a little help from the outboard, we arrived opposite the bandstand, where the band immediately started to play Hearts of Oak. How glad we were that it was night to hide our red and confused faces. we started to turn the nova round but the wind failed and we began to drift inshore towards the land wonderful we would have had a shipwreck with the music playing we did a little to aston standing by and he fortunately heard and came to our rescue as he grabbed the tow rope his engine stopped it looked as if there was going to be a double act in this wrecking business but fortunately he managed to restart his engine and tow us offshore with inches to spare As we slowly went away in the darkness, the crowds watching began to shout, Bon voyage! and the like. Shotguns roared out, and the band played Hearts of Oak more loudly than ever. It was a most wonderful send-off, and we will never forget the kindliness and friendliness of Shelburne. Ashton shook our hands, wished us all the best, and returned to the quay. We drifted along for about half an hour, then a powerful looking motor fishing boat came alongside and the crew said they would give us a tow out for a mile or so. We agreed to this generous offer and for 15 minutes roared down the harbour. They passed us something to drink which took the skin off our throats. Then the motorboat stopped. There were more farewells and no sooner were we alone than stealthily a grey pall descended on us blotting out the lights from the shore. Soon It became so dense that sitting in the cockpit we couldn't see the mast. Suddenly, there was a loud crash and a shudder ran through the boat. One of us ran forward to see what it was, and he could just make out a dark shape bobbing in the water. We had collided with a fairway buoy. Fortunately, we had been going too slowly to do much damage, but it was enough to bring home to us the foolishness of continuing to sail in those restricted waters until the fog lifted. We got out the anchor, which we had newly acquired, as we considered it necessary now that we were once again in tidal waters and bent on a warp. We threw it overboard and it came to rest in about 40 feet of water. We kept alternate watches that night in spite of being at anchor, for there was always a possibility of a fishing boat feeling its way back home. Daylight came wanly through the thick fog and we could see no more than 12 yards ahead of the boat. And there was no wind it was now the 12th of august and we desperately wanted to get on and finish the voyage for there were people waiting to put on show the goods we carried but a sailboat is at the mercy of the wind in the late afternoon a light southerly wind came up we heaved the anchor aboard and tacked slowly down the harbor when we reached our old friend the beacon which marked the bend the tide turned against us and we were unable to make any headway. A couple of miles away we could see a single wharf in a cove among the islands. With the tide assisting us we altered course towards it and reached there about one and a half hours later. Two people were fishing off the end of the wharf, one an old but active looking man with white hair, the other a fat boy about twelve years old they got up at our approach and told us that we were going to be in the way where we lay, and without another word, took our mooring lines and moved us to the tip of the wooden piling. The white-haired man relaxed then and introduced himself as John Doane. When we found that we were from England, he became interested, saying that his grandfather had come over from the old country. John Doane had lived all his life in this sheltered spot, which was called Gunnings Cove. We were invited to have tea with him and meet his wife, children and children's children. Over a cup of tea, we learned of his many activities. Though first and foremost a fisherman, like any other good Nova Scotian, he was also an excellent craftsman in wood, and he showed us a beautiful violin he had made. His other accomplishments included house-building, blacksmithing, hunting, and acting as local veterinary advisor. This versatile patriarch had really established himself in the cove, for most of the houses around contained dones and Done children. We spent a peaceful night in the Nova, which was gently nuzzling against the wooden pilings. The next day, the 13th of August, a thick blanket of fog covered everything. No wind arrived to clear it, so there it stayed until nightfall. Nova Scotian fogs are world-famous, and they were putting on a good show for us, but it wasn't appreciated, for we were in a tearing hurry, and we damned the weather in no uncertain manner. When we realised that we wouldn't be moving that day, we walked to the house of a photographer we met at Shelburne, and here we were shown some samples of his lovely colour photography. That evening, during our walk back to the boat, our clothes became soaking wet in the now even denser fog. The fog lifted on the 14th of august and the sun poured down from a cloudless sky our out-of-the-world spot looked beautiful the water in the cove was bright greenish blue edged by massive gray boulders patched with mustard colored lichen it was a lovely picture of vivid colors but for us its beauty was spoiled by the fact that there was no wind we spent most of the day standing idly on the wharf, watching the motorboats unload their cargo of fish, which was weighed and then packed in ice. Cod was the principal fish caught, with pollock a close second. Haddock and halibut made up their varied catches, the latter being by far the most valuable. We were rather shocked to find out just how little per pound the fisherman got. It averaged about two to three cents for cod, three-quarters to one and a half cents for Pollock, Halibut usually managed to bring in nine cents a pound. When all the excitement of unloading fish was over, we just stood with our hands in our pockets, glumly looking at the all-too-peaceful cove. Mr. Doan came to our rescue by inviting us up to his house again. After a meal, he entertained us by playing old country dances on his fiddle, held Mark Hugh in the correct posture for that type of music, namely, low on the shoulder. He told us of still another job at which he excelled, that of locating water and sinking wells. His method of lifting up the full buckets from a well was simple but effective, being the use of a long pole with a counterpoise at one end so that the bucket lifted easily. We awoke next morning full of hope, but on going on deck found the same placidity, and also a slight mist. During breakfast of boiled eggs we suggested such wild ideas as starting to paddle the remaining five or six miles to the open sea in the hope that we might find a wind. But as we did not carry oars and rowlocks, the idea was abandoned. At mid-morning, a faint breath of air stealing up from the southwest made us shout farewell to Mr Doan and some of his family who were standing nearby and we hurriedly made sail. We glided slowly across the cove and out into the main channel. We managed to make about a mile when we saw a solid wall of fog advancing from outside and down the harbour. Soon it covered us and hid the land, and we could only hear the swell breaking on the rocks nearby. As the tide ran in all directions round the islands, we did the only thing possible. We anchored. What a difference bright sunshine can make to the state of mind. Our feelings can easily be understood now that we were once again halted and surrounded by a grey murk that penetrated everywhere. As usually happens when fog descends, the wind disappeared. Just sitting around was too much for us. Charles got out the rubber dinghy and pumped it up in preparation for finding the shore, which sounded very near. No sooner was it placed on the water... Then it began to lose its shape and ended up by being just a piece of rubber floating disjointedly on the water, supported by odd pockets of air. Still, the thought of exploring a strange shore was too great a temptation, so hanging over the side, pumping furiously, he jumped in when it came back to shape. By pumping a few seconds, then paddling hard with the little hand paddles, then pumping again, the shore was reached, but not without loss of dignity for a swell had speeded up the last yard or so and dumped the dinghy onto a small boulder just where the paddler would feel it most, and then a slightly larger swell came in and filled the rubber boat before he had a chance to move. The nova had disappeared from sight. All that could be seen were rounded rocks sloping up towards the land and a small semicircle of restless sea. The now deflated dinghy was hauled up out of reach of the tide and the exploration began. One useful item was found, a lobster pot, which had broken loose in some recent storm, was wedged among the rocks, and trailed around it was some excellent lightly tarred rope, an inch in circumference. About 300 feet of it were undamaged, and later proved a very useful addition to our gear. On the way back, a fairly straight stick was found, which later served as a spinnaker pole, replacing the bamboo ones which had always been a little too short. By now the fog had lifted a little, and the Nova could be seen as a dark outline on a grey background. The journey back ended up by becoming a swim, for the rubber dinghy collapsed a few feet from the boat. The jetsam from the beach was saved, and the limp dinghy hauled aboard, folded up, stowed away, and never used again. We cooked a couple of mackerel given to us by Mr Doan, and enjoyed them very much, "'finishing off with some of Mrs Mack's cake "'and the everlasting tea. "'Sleep that night was difficult, "'for there was a heavy swell coming down the harbour. "'Shortly after getting up the following morning, "'August the 16th, "'a wind came from the east "'and started to ruffle the oily surface of the calm water. "'We made a very hurried breakfast then, "'with the sails hanging loose, ready to hoist, "'before going forward to heave in the anchor. "'Soon the rope was up and down,' and we gave an extra strong pull to break it out. But it didn't budge. We heaved with every ounce of strength we had. Our faces became red and strained, but still it refused to give way. We decided to be smart. Hauling on the anchor line as hard as we could, we then made it fast to the Samson post on the foredeck and ran back to the stern of the boat, hoping that our combined weight would lift the bow sufficiently to tear the anchor from its hold. It didn't work. As far as we could see there was nothing else left but to try sailing it out we got up all sail let out fathoms of rope and off we went only to be stopped instantly by a violent jerk which nearly threw us off our feet we were surprised that the rope hadn't broken but now we didn't care anchor or no anchor we intended to clear shelburne harbour that day more rope was slacked off and we set off to sail the anchor out again on a different tack On we went, bracing ourselves for the jerk that would come but, to our surprise, we just kept on going. One of us then went forward and started heaving at the rope hanging over the side. Some brisk work brought the long length aboard and the anchor. It must have been caught under a ledge and our trying in a different direction brought it out with no more trouble. One fluke of the anchor was badly bent, probably from the first attempt to lift it. We tacked out of the harbour turned south when we were well clear of the red and white lighthouse, and with the wind now on our beam, made good progress towards the tip of Nova Scotia. Once past the dreaded Cape Sable, we felt that all would be well. We little knew just how long it would take us to pass that Cape. During the afternoon, the wind backed from east to southeast, then south to southwest, dead against us, We started doing long tacks out to sea and back towards the shore. The wind began to freshen, and the spray started to fly. On a long leg to the land we made Cape Negro, but out to sea for a couple of miles and back brought Cape Negro, about half a mile ahead. We were losing ground rapidly and realised that the tide, which ran fast up and down the coast, had turned against us, We carried on tacking as close as we could to the wind, trying to hold our own and thinking that in about five hours the worst force of the tide would be over. The going was hard, for in the comparatively shallow water off the coast, the waves were short and very steep. The wind still increased and we tucked in a reef on the main. As we crashed into the sea, the spray was flung halfway up the mast. The helmsman quickly became soaking wet and water had to be bailed out of the cockpit. The continuous fall of the barometer warned us that we might have to face a gale. This we could have taken on our stride, but not so close to shore. A quick study of the chart showed that the easiest place to enter was Barrington Passage, so we decided to try to make for the shelter there until at least the wind changed from dead against us to some other quarter. At 6pm, the tide must have turned, for on our next tack in shore, Cape Negro was about half a mile astern, The tide, now against the wind, produced an even steeper sea, and we were fairly trounced. But it was exciting, for the harbour was only a few miles away, and we settled down to enjoy a battle with the wind and the wave. On our way in from a particularly long tack out to sea, we saw that we could carry on straight into Barrington Passage. Another look at the chart showed a couple of crosses marked on our course. Those meant rocks. One of us went forward to look for extra heavy broken seas ahead, which would reveal their position. Standing with one hand on the mast and water sweeping over his legs, he peered ahead, but as all the water was breaking, it was a difficult job. Suddenly, a cry came forward. I can see Bottom here. A quick look by the helmsman showed the truth of his cry. Before any action could be taken, the shallows faded away, and we were in deeper water. Another cry came from forward and an outstretched arm pointing over our port bow at a wave which suddenly shot skywards 20 feet or more into the air. Good, we had located the other rock which represented the second cross on the chart. Barrington Passage once cut off the tip of Nova Scotia and separated Cape Sable Island from the mainland. But a large causeway has been built in the last two years and soon the passage itself will be silted up. Once in the smoother water, we tore along at top speed, past Baccaro Light, which looked like a child's striped candy stick, past a few scattered houses and into the actual passage. The mainland looked dreary, but there were no trees on the low-lying land, and the grass seemed burned by sea spray. We kept close to the mainland in the hope that we should spot some sheltered cove not shown on our small-scale chart. Ahead, we saw a long line of posts in the water, And as we came closer, we saw that nets were slung between them, and that a circle was formed at the end. We couldn't make out what it was, but found out later that it was a fish trap. Chancing to look astern, we were surprised to see a huddle of boats sheltering behind a rough seawall built of posts filled in with stones. It had looked so close to the shore that we never thought that it might be a shelter, but it was, and we turned and headed the Nova straight for it this was better than we had hoped for as it was situated just at the entrance to the passage from which we could proceed without much loss of time when the weather improved as the water seemed to be shallowing we lowered the mainsail and proceeded slowly under jib and mizzen the total width from the staging near the shore to the protected area was not more than 50 feet and there were three boats tied alongside each other leaving us about 20 feet in which to maneuver we needn't have worried, for no sooner were we inside than we struck bottom hard. A line was thrown to us and we pulled the Nova over to one of the fishing boats. We rather shamefacedly lowered the jib and mizzen and then went back to the cockpit and looked around our new harbour. It was most certainly the smallest we'd ever been in, but it looked very snug. So far not a single word had been spoken by the thin line of men on the pilings. To us, they looked hostile and we felt like unwanted intruders. It was not long before we found them to be the kindest and most generous of people. For generations they had earned their living by the sea. Most times the earnings were small, but they helped each other in a communal spirit rarely found elsewhere. We broke the ice by asking whether there would be enough water under us when the tide went out. There won't be, said one old man clad in blue jeans, sea boots and a grey shirt. Better give me your line. When we had done so, he pulled us in front of the three fishing boats and poked our bow in a gap in the pilings, where there would be plenty of water, even at low tide. Well, that's the end of the episode for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. Now, if you haven't already, please check out the other podcast, The Mariner. There's lots of seamanship advice there and stories from my life sailing and we answer questions and go off on terrible tangents and things that uh, seem to keep people that are interested in sailing quite entertained. That's the Mariner podcast. Of course, you can go to YouTube and pick out the Mariner there. And at the moment, we're on board with the 40-foot Triamaran Spirit, sailing from Antigua to Bermuda, and then on to New England. And all of this being made possible by the kind donations of sailors over on patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all for today from the Mariner's Library, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.